Good morning, everyone. Our passage this morning, the sermon text is from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the child of God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Our Father, what a privilege it is to pray to you. What a privilege it is to relate to you. I pray now you teach us more about prayer through this, the words of Christ. We pray that by your spirit you'll compel us to pray. And we pray that in light of this morning that you will inform our prayers, bring us to value what you value, to treasure what you treasure. May our aim be your aim. To use the preaching of your word to this end, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the Lord's model prayer. Some call it the Lord's prayer, but Jesus does not have in mind that we recite this necessarily word for word. That's fine. He chooses to do this, but this is a model of prayer. The disciples and the accountant Luke, they say, teach us, Jesus, how to pray. And Jesus lays this similar account out. So, though we often say it word for word, this is really a model. So my goal this morning is to teach us its contents. What is God valuing? What is Jesus valuing? What should we be praying? And this is a familiar passage, of course. For many of us, especially those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, I grew up in the Bible Belt, Rural North Carolina, the first time actually, though, I heard this prayer recited. I was a freshman in high school, just got warmed up for our first wrestling match of the season. And our coach gathered us over, he gave us a little pep talk. And then at the end, a curious thing happened. He and sophomores, juniors, seniors, they all bowed their heads. And they began reciting the King James Version of this prayer. And I looked around, I didn't know what was going on. I remember some of it, recalled some of it. The curious thing, though, is that I am unsure if any of my coaches or any of the other wrestlers were Christians. But by the end of the season, everyone could recite the prayer. So every match, if you think about it, every match, we would pray for the glory of the triune God, we pray that the kingdom of his beloved son 
would break into earth and triumph over the forces of darkness and evil, we'd say amen, and then we'd go out and lose or win our wrestling match. And something about that seems off. It seemed off then, it seems off now. A bunch of non-Christians praying this very potent, wonderful prayer. It was jarring, even back then. And I think it's off because all of us were just assuming that we had the right to pray this prayer. And we did not have the right. You can't just pray this prayer. Jesus is not just instructing that any and everyone can pray this prayer. It's not a casual thing. This is an in-house sort of prayer. This is an in-the-family sort of prayer. Only those who call God Father can pray this prayer. And that's how it starts. We must get this right. So first things first, you have to be in the family to pray this prayer. If you're a note taker this morning, I have four basic points to make about this prayer. The first is this, pray as if you're in the family of God. Pray as if you are in the family of God. The immediate context of this passage comes from one of Jesus' most famous, most noteworthy discourses where he teaches. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a number of contrasts. Those who enter by the narrow gate, that's contrasted with those who are on the broad path. That path leads to destruction. There's a contrast between those who build their house on the sand. They're foolish. It's contrasted with those who build their house on the rock. And here, there's also a contrast. There are the hypocrites, and there are those who pray to God as Father. If you'll notice, just before this prayer, Jesus says, do not pray like the unbelievers and the hypocrites. That's verses 5 to 8. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Therefore, do not be like them. Those Pharisees, who are they praying for? They're praying for themselves. They're praying for their own glory. They're praying that they may be seen by men. They pray, if you think about it, in order to feel good. The praise of men makes them feel good, so they're praying for themselves. God does not hear such prayers. Such people are not coming to him by the name and blood of Jesus. They are not seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what's God's disposition towards them? What's his response? In Lamentations, chapter 3, we get a, a bit of a response here from God. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pity. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. So the ungodly, when they try to pray... God is shrouded in a cloud, and their prayers cannot get through to him. They're not children of God. So first things first, as we look at this prayer, you've got to be in the family that your prayers may be heard. If you're not in the family of God, 
God's disposition towards you is that of wrath. He is displeased with you because you are covered with sin. And even more than that, you have Satan as your father. John 8, this is what Jesus says of sinners. Jesus is being accused of lying. And Jesus responds, why do you not understand my speech? It's because, it's because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. Have you lied? Have you murdered? Have you dishonored your parents, boys and girls? Have you dishonored your parents? Have you ever been jealous? Has someone ever had something that you wanted and you couldn't have it, so you got angry about it? Who does such things? Satan does. He is the father of those who do such things. Who is more jealous than Satan? He is the father of jealousy. He wants what's not his. Have you done that? If you are not yet a Christian, this is a question you must recognize. Whose family do you act like you are in? Jesus is not a liar. He's not an adulterer. not a thief. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. And here is the good news for sinners. For all of us here. Christ, the righteous one, came to die for sinners. There is a great penalty Sinners must pay, and only Christ is sufficient to pay it. And he does this by taking the wrath of God on your behalf. So trust him. Trust him to pay it. This is the only way you can be free from the fatherhood of the evil one. Scripture talks about Christians in this way. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the new kingdom, the kingdom of light. So sinners cannot pray this, our Father, who art in heaven. But every sinner is welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. The Savior says, come to me, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. So sinner, go to him. And it's then, then, through the shed blood of the Son, then you can pray as if you're in the family. You can pray, Abba, Father. And if you're a believer here, you too must get this part right. When you think of God, believer, what comes to mind? Our thoughts of God define so much about us, don't they? Our thoughts of God inform our prayers. Think of that emoji. You know that emoji it's not frowning or smiling, but for a mouth, it just has a straight line. It's just kind of sitting there. Is that how you view God? Is he just kind of sitting there, flat line? He's not smiling at you. He's not frowning. He's just kind of there. That is not the disposition of God towards the saints. You've been adopted into this fairy family. We sing about this, don't we? We sung about it this morning. There's another song we often sing. In the arms of our dear Savior, there are what? 10,000 charms. Yeah. Do you think, though, about that first part? <clears throat> In the arms of my dear Savior. Believer, do you think of yourself as resting in the arms 
We don't talk like this much today. The Puritans talk about it. Rutherford speaks of, of having faith enough that you lean your head down and rest upon the chest of Jesus. And he says, until you have that kind of faith, you will be restless. For it's only upon the chest of Christ. It's only in his very arms that you're really going to find rest for your souls. So I understand life is not always rosy. There are trials. There are temptations. But if you have this image of God in your mind, if you have this image of your Savior, this next part of the prayer comes quite naturally, doesn't it? Hallowed be your name. If you're resting in Christ, you want to pray this. You're commanded to, but you're going to want to. Great is your name, O God. You will want to pray when you see Christ in his beauty. So secondly, our second point this morning, pray God's glory and kingdom will spread throughout the earth. Pray God's glory and kingdom will spread throughout the earth. So this is the hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. John Calvin breaks the Lord's prayer into two tables. This is similar to the Ten Commandments in that way. So two tables of the prayer. And you'll notice there's six petitions. Three of them focus on God's name going forth. And the latter three, that would be the second table, these are man's petitions for help from God. So here we are, the first table, if you will, of the Lord's prayer. This first clause, hallowed. Hallow is another word for honor or to set apart as holy. So to hallow is to show that something is in a class all by itself. His name shall be hallowed. And this is really the ultimate purpose of the entire prayer. Everything flows from this. Why pray for God's kingdom to come? That God's name may be honored. Why pray for daily bread? That God's name may be honored. Why pray for anything at all? That God's name may be hallowed. That it may be honored. So Father, hallowed be your name. It's the summary. It's the purpose. And Jesus himself prays this way before going to the cross. In John 12. He says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, hallowed be your name. We hallow God's name when we speak of him with joy and reverence and wonder. The disciples hallowed Jesus' name after he calmed the stormy seas. If you recall that, Jesus up until that point, he had done many miracles and signs. He'd even cast out demons. But Jesus, in the midst of a storm, he makes the wind stop in its tracks. He controls the weather. He stops it like it's a computer game. And the disciples hallow his name. They fall back in fear. And they say, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So this is the first request. That we see the Father, that we see the Son, that we see the Holy Spirit for all their worth. 
and that we will worship him, that we will hallow him. In the next phrase, you'll see God's kingdom must come. Here, we have to do a bit of legwork leg and consider what is meant by kingdom. There's some confusion in certain theological circles on this point, so what is meant by kingdom? We can learn the answer by looking at the rest of the New Testament. Let's look especially at Matthew. Matthew uses kingdom over 50 times, but there are two main ways in which Matthew uses it. First, God's kingdom is a place the saints dwell with God in eternity. It's heaven. God's kingdom is a place that we enter for all eternity. Matthew 25 teaches us this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. So to pray your kingdom come. It's to pray that God will come through. On his promise of paradise. The very last petition in the Bible. Come Lord Jesus. Is, is really the same prayer. This world is not our homes. We're pilgrims. We're exiles. And a regular prayer of ours. Should be. That this Future heavenly kingdom will come quickly. The other use of the word kingdom in the New Testament comes when Jesus does his ministry. It's the way I'm going to phrase it. This is the kingdom of God that comes to earth. Matthew 4, the very beginning of his ministry, before he calls his first disciples, before he heals the blind, before he casts out demons. Jesus began to preach. And specifically, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom was at hand. How? Jesus was preaching. That's how. As his ministry begins, the kingdom comes. Matthew 12, we see another example. One was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there it is again. Jesus' kingdom comes forth as Jesus' very ministry goes forth. Demons are cast out by the Spirit of God. And that's the kingdom of God going forth. It's the kingdom of Satan losing its grip on the souls of men. So, back to our prayer. What are we praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come? We pray for Jesus' ministry 
to come forth. And though Jesus has now risen on high, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, we still pray for this. We still pray for his kingdom to come. The church, this church, it could be said, we're an outpost of a sort. We're an outpost of the kingdom. And to pray your kingdom come is to pray for the success of the ministry of Christ through this church. Though it must be said, Jesus' kingdom comes to the earth, it is not of the earth. Frequently, people mistook Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus' aim. They saw him making bread. They were like, whoa, this guy can make bread. He would make a good king, wouldn't he? We could take on the Romans, couldn't we? And they tried to seize him and make him king. But that was not Jesus' mission, and he slipped from their grip. Later, as Jesus is being arrested, Peter gets out his sword, and he chops off the ear of one of the guards. And recall Jesus' response. Put your sword away, Peter. There will be no fighting here. My kingdom is not won by the sword, Peter. My kingdom is won through sacrifice. Put your sword away, Peter. Put your sword away, Peter. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is otherworldly. Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for this in two senses. We pray that we enter the kingdom of heaven on the last day, and we pray that the ministry of Jesus will go forth on earth. Kevin Young has a good book on the Lord's Prayer, and here is an extensive quote, and I'm going to include it because there is so much contention on this issue of kingdom. Notice in the New Testament, we see God's people praying for the kingdom and proclaiming the kingdom, but we never see the language that they are building the kingdom. Amen. Take note of that. Pay attention to the verbs associated with the kingdom of God. The kingdom can come, it can arrive, it can appear, but we do not establish the kingdom. Expand the kingdom or grow the kingdom. It is not a society to be built, but a gift to be received. So though we are a church, though we are doing the ministry of Christ, we ourselves are not building the kingdom. God builds the kingdom. In order to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. God does that. The Spirit of Christ does that. We, of course, are his ambassadors. We'll speak more on that in a moment. Kevin DeYoung, though, he does go on. This is a good metaphor. The kingdom of God is like the sun breaking in. You don't build the sun. You don't make the sun. You can pray that the clouds would part. You can declare to people the rays and the warmth of the sun, but it's not something you build or bring. The kingdom is God's kingdom, and we can receive it, seek it, enter it, or inherit it, but we don't create it, break it, or even give it to others. Only God can give the kingdom. 
So to pray for God's kingdom to come is not just to pray for societal transformation. It is to pray primarily for the ministry of Jesus to go forth. Societal transformation, cultural renewal, these things are good. And they may happen. And indeed, they have happened in church history. But God's kingdom, as the New Testament uses that phrase, it comes with the breaking forth of the gospel of Christ. The next phrase in the prayer, the third petition, is this. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This phrase carries with it many of the same truths as the one before it, but the addition of this phrase, God's will be done, adds some clarification, some nuance. Like the word kingdom, God's will can also be understood in different ways. We can think of God's secret will, his sovereign will. We can pray for that. But this is fixed. It's unchanging. God's sovereign will is the truth that teaches us that God predestines all things according to his own purpose. God's will is going to happen. There's no one, there's no thing that can stop it. The other use you see in the New Testament, God's will, the other use is what we may call his moral will. This is what God desires. God desires, for instance, that his son be glorified. He desires that his church preach the gospel. He desires that people obey his commands. Do not steal, do not lie. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are God's will. Ephesians 6, we get a glimpse of this. Paul is instructing bondservants on how to obey. And he says, whether your masters are looking at you or whether they're not looking at you, you need to obey them, not with eye service, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So what is the will of God there? It's to do the right thing. Obedience, then, is what we ask for. We are praying in the Lord's Prayer that we will do the will of God. We can pray for unbelievers that they would obey God, that they would, they would obey the commands to repent and accept Christ as their Savior. So far, three positions. The first half, we just covered and take note, it's all about God and the gospel going forth. All three are about God's glory spreading. And the next three regard those things we need to make this happen. These are things that regard what we need to glorify Him. Give us our bread is a reasonable petition for the saints who want to honor God's Name. So this, our third point. Petition God for those things you need to glorify his name. Petition God for those things you need to glorify his name. Daily bread is to help us achieve these purposes. We're to glorify God in all that we do. And the bread is that we make this a reality. And bread, it, it's not simply to be taken as bread, it's all we need to glorify Him. It includes food, shelter, these sorts of things. Perhaps one of the most outlandish, maybe hard to believe verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, and if you do so in my name, I will grant it. 
and every nine-year-old boy like myself, first time they hear that, they're like, a million dollars, easy. It's at least what I did. Spurgeon actually has an illustration on this that, that's helpful here. Suppose you give a man your checkbook, signed with your own name and left blank to be filled up as he chose. That would be very nearly what Jesus has done in these words. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If I had a good name at the bottom of the check, I would be sure that I would get it cash when I went to the banker with it. So when you have Christ's name, to whom the very justice of God has become a debtor, and whose merits have claims with the Most High, when you have Christ's name, there is no need to speak with fear and trembling and bated breath. If you get that first half of this prayer, if you really want God's name to be hallowed in the earth, God is going to give you what you need. So believer, what are you asking for in your prayers? What are you expecting? God's aim is to build up his church to spread his church. So daily bread is really for the building up of his church. Yes, it's for you. But it's for the building up of his church. If God wants to send you to the mission field, he will provide the means. If he wants you or our church to evangelize the wealthy in society, he will put you in a place to do so. If he wants you to evangelize and make disciples among the poor, he will give you the tools you need in order to do so. Daily bread, it's, it's, it's not for us in the sense of my best life now. This isn't about you living your best life now. It's for, the, it's for the church. Take note of this phrase, give us today. Give us today our bread. I think this is important. I don't think it's redundant. It's not a throwaway phrase. It's about today's bread. Why today? Why not ask for tomorrow's bread? Or the next day? Or bread for the next week? If you peek down further in chapter 6, there is a section on anxiety. And Jesus says, do not be anxious. God clothes the grass of the field. He feeds the ravens. And there's this same idea there in chapter 6, verse 34. Therefore, Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I think this sheds light on our, on our passage. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When we ask for daily bread, we really do mean that daily part. It glorifies God when you go to him every day for bread. Remember, this is not about your glory. It's about honoring God. And remember, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And who is this addressed to? It's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Such as those are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they enter like a helpless, like a needy child. And that honors God. If you can make it to heaven all by yourself, what glory is God getting in that? So daily bread. And often, 
like the, like the Israelites in the wilderness, he gave them manna for the day. That was it. Is that the way you view it? It's helpful, isn't it? Daily bread. This isn't to say that we don't plan. It's not to say we don't get organized. It doesn't mean that we don't go to school and prepare for the future. But it is to say, be humble. It is to say, God will grant you what you need to glorify him today. God's promise is for today. What do you need to glorify him today? So live and work in your current station in life. Know your place. Do you need God's help? Ask for the bread. He delights to give his children precisely what they need. The next phrase is about forgiveness. It says this, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. None of us want to walk around in life guilty, ashamed. And when we go forth, and if our, on our hearts is the ministry of Christ, we don't want to do so with guilt on our conscience. We want the forgiveness of God as we go forth and do his work. So we pray, forgive us our debts. The next phrase, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In a sense, much of the New Testament talks about this. The Apostle Paul talks about this in various ways, in various places. But really, this is, God, help us to be holy. Don't let us believe the lies of the evil one. Let us not be led into temptation. Keep us in the vine that we may bear much fruit. I think that's the idea there. Fourth point, and the last point. Live as if you are in the family of God. Live as if you are in the family of God. The first point was to pray as if you're in the family. Now, last point, live as if you're in the family. I say this in part because of that condition. Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive others. A note of clarification, your forgiveness from God is not dependent on good works. So this condition is not ultimate. But it is to say, don't just pray this prayer, act in step with it. If you're asking God for forgiveness, you should extend forgiveness to others when they trespass against you. And then there is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the teachings that Jesus, Jesus proclaims just after this prayer do not lay up treasure on earth. Do not be anxious. Do not judge others. Love others as you would have them love you. And this phrase, forgive us as we forgive others, it makes us look back, doesn't it, to the very beginning of the prayer. Are you praying like a hypocrite? Are you living like a hypocrite? It's really, it's really bookended, the prayer with talk about hypocrites. It begins, do not pray like the hypocrites, and then after the prayer, it says, do not fast like the hypocrites. If you're going to fast, fast secretly. And the idea there, on both ends of the prayer, is to live consistently, to live in light of your prayer. Do not pray 
and then go out and act as if you didn't pray. To not pray for God's glory to go forth and to then, then just turn around and go live and just bring dishonor on his name. That's the point. And then the last phrase, if you're reading the King James or the New King James, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God. It's the beginning of the prayer. He's at the end of the prayer. If we succeed in any which way, it's all owing to his power and to his glory. And in conclusion, I have two points. If you find yourself in a season of prayerlessness, prayerlessness, which we all do, if you find yourself in a season of prayerlessness, I think the remedy is to go back to the beginning of this prayer. Can you pray, Father, in faith? If he is your Father, be honest with him. Let your request be known to him. He knows you. You're not hiding anything. He knows what you need before you even ask. If you fumble the words, you can't seem to think straight because life is so heavy. He's your Father. You can go to him. And lastly, let's close with an additional note on that petition about God's kingdom coming about for a moment what this prayer is implying. It just says your kingdom come. And if it says your kingdom come, it means, well, your kingdom is, is, is not here. There's a different kingdom here. Satan reigns on earth and his throne sits on every human heart. Satan rules the hearts of the wicked. And every single one of you, at one time or another, has had Satan in his heart. This is the language of the Puritan, Thomas Watson. He says, Satan's throne is on human hearts. If this is the kingdom of Satan that we're in the midst of, where is his throne? It's on hearts. If you are not yet a Christian, know that Christ died to dethrone that evil one. And if you are already in Christ, think about this. Satan is no longer on the throne of your heart. Jesus is. The king is in your heart. And there will be times where Satan, when you're tired, when you're tempted, Satan is going to come along. The words that Samuel Rutherford says, he's going to plant his flag in you. And even if he can't have all of you, Satan will say, half mine, and he'll plant the flag. It's ridiculous. He has no authority. You have been transferred out of that kingdom. You're in the kingdom of heaven. And if the king is in your heart, think about this. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, making his appeal to the world through us. He made him to be no sin that we may become the righteousness of God in him, and now we are his ambassadors. What a privilege we have. Let that truth humble us. Let it guide our ethics. And let it energize us in this week to come. Let's pray together.
Father, what a glorious God you are, and we barely understand all the reasons we should honor and glorify you, but we have so many reasons. And I pray that you indeed will energize us, that we may proclaim Christ to this lost world, use the ministry of this church to push forth his kingdom. And I pray for all here who hear these words, if any are not in Christ, bring them today to grab hold of him as Savior.